going live and here we are today welcome everybody welcome to Peggy's recovery corner um today i have a special guest he will be here very soon but i just wanted to open it up and say that uh Peggy's recovery corner is a recovery podcast um, we talk about all things recovery or lack thereof depending on how you roll and the meaning of that is is that often we have people from um different walks of life that come on to our recovery program and talk about their recovery. Um, and every once in a while, we have people who uh, feel that they're in recovery, depending on what they're doing, how they're living. Some of them might be body brokers or body brokered, or, and they think that they're still getting recovery. And if that's what they truly think is real recovery, so be it. But um, we have we've had one guy on the show before that, uh, was the director of the movie Body Brokers, um, John Schwab. Really good interview. He actually was body brokered at one time in his life and completely turned his life around and is a, is a major filmmaker. Um, but anyway, so today's episode is going to be in relation to 12-step um, recovery as opposed to medication-assisted treatment recovery. Um, some people call that MAT. Um, uh, once my guest gets here, we'll be talking about that in in great extent, but we'll be talking about his life, who he is, and then we'll get deeper into that conversation. Um, as far as 12-step recovery, often I have a lot of different people that come on the show that I tell them in advance, you know, if you're like a member of, let's say, for example, a 12-step group, um, it's up to you if you want to break your anonymity and talk about um, your recovery and how you obtain recovery. If you are part of a 12-step fellowship, that's on you. Like, I don't like to... Um, air out anybody's laundry, like to basically say that somebody is a member of, say, for example, Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not my place to do that. I don't want to break the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so if somebody comes on and they decide, and a lot of people say I'm an open book, I have no problem talking about that, um, then that's on them. You know, a lot of people will insinuate, sometimes hint, or even directly straight up say, like, I was in a meeting or I have a sponsor and I work the steps. And um, one of the reasons that we want to have this conversation today with Dano, who's going to be here momentarily, any second now, is because uh, we see that uh, MAT, medication assistant treatment, is majorly on the rise right now when it comes to treatment settings, treatment facilities, and treatment stays. A lot of people at this point, at least I know in California, um, people cannot be turned away that go to treatment for medication assistant treatment. And what does that look like? So medication assistant treatment can come in many different forms. Uh, but one of them is definitely uh, people that are on um, buprenorphine, which is Suboxone, and that's Suboxone maintenance. And again, when we go back to talking about um, recovery or lack thereof, there's a lot of controversy that surrounds itself around uh, buprenorphine and Suboxone. There are a lot of people that will go into treatment and uh, a doctor will tell them, or give them the option of staying on long-term suboxone maintenance, which um, which then they you know they can be on it for months on hand, sometimes years, and um, and they feel a lot of people feel that they are in recovery when they are on suboxone, and and to each their own. I mean, if that's what some people truly believe, then uh, that's their recovery. You know, who am I to judge? Um, I just know that. The, you know, besides the fact that there's a lot of memes out there where they say Suboxone ain't sober, um, I personally 
um, feel that when a human being is actually abstinent based, like completely abstinent from all mind altering substances, including Suboxone, which is supposed to help somebody uh, not have to go through the withdrawals of, of an opiate addiction, it's, it's an opiate blocker, um, that they're still dependent upon a certain type of substance that's going to help them not have to endure the pain of getting off of another type of substance. When somebody is on uh, buprenorphine or suboxone and they finally decide that they do want to get off completely, like not be on it anymore, um, they should be detoxed, um, usually medically. I mean, some people will do it uh, raw without any kind of comfort meds or anything like that or or a detox setting, and they, they endure just as much pain, if not more sometimes, than they would from um, opiate addiction. So, and Suboxone, you know, came into play. I mean, it's it's been around for a while, but it became more popular um, in the last decade and a half, almost two decades now. Um, it became an alternative to methadone uh, treatment, which methadone also is used, you know, it was, it's been used for decades now uh, to help people get off of heroin addiction um, <clears throat> or opiate addiction for that matter. And often people will, uh, they will go to methadone clinics and they will be prescribed methadone in certain types of um, doses, um, sometimes low doses, sometimes certain amount of milligrams. And then sometimes they have to up their doses depending on what happens uh, during the time that they are attempting to be off of opiates and uh, certain things may happen in their lives to where they end up back at the at the clinic or wherever they are getting their methadone, whether it be from a doctor, prescribed them through a doctor. Um, they, they, I've seen people come into a treatment system or setting at, you know, extremely high doses of methadone, which, which, uh, which is really scary because having to detox somebody off of methadone alone. Um, a lot of places will not take somebody on a high uh, dosage. Here's my friend. Hey. Daniel's here. <laughs> Thanks for having me, man. And uh, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll just get into the conversation. So this is Dano. Welcome to the corner. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. And um, today we are going to be first what we used to what we like to do on this recovery podcast is delve into your past and see who you are, where you were born, where you're raised and kind of uh, see what your upbringing was like and then get into the nitty gritty, the, the the addiction, if there is any, or alcoholism. And then after that, talk about the recovery. But we also have a very hot topic today that uh, we've already discussed in advance, what we'll be talking about. So we'll get into that too. So who's Dano? Cool, cool. Um, yeah, thanks again for having me. Who's Dano? Uh, born in Torrance, California. Uh, so... LA County, those of you who are not familiar. And uh, I mean, I don't know, man, like I, um, I grew up here and I, I kind of just uh, the LA culture from the suburbs, you know, and uh, it was interesting. I always describe Palos Verdes, which is where I went to high school. It's kind of like being in Beverly Hills, but Beverly Hills is like surrounded by very affluent, like West Hollywood and Beverly Wood, right. where we were like surrounded by, you know, Wilmington, Lomita, Harbor City, San Pedro. And mm -hmm. so like it was on and cracking. And, you know, I started smoking bud when I was nine years old, mm -hmm. uh, you it's know, awfully young. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, so I don't try to ramp this up. So we're not just talking about me the whole time. But sure. um, yeah, man, I mean, I just kind of I got in a lot of trouble uh, at a young age. Um, you know, I got good grades and 
and I uh, got a job at a pharmacy when I was in high school and, you know, started going over the border and bringing pharmaceuticals over the border, started injecting the first, this is the trip. The first thing I ever injected, guess what it was? Hmm. Buprenorphine. I was 17 and I was in Mexico. And back then this was before Suboxone existed, you know, but buprenorphine was like a good painkiller and it was really cheap in Mexico. And I, my friend, I mean, how'd you even catch wind of doing like, did someone tell you you should try this? Yeah, yeah, totally. Like uh, <laughs> my friend, his brother was a bodybuilder. And so he had gotten in from like bodybuilding and injecting steroids. And a lot of those guys, they won't inject like heroin because you can't like bodybuild, mm -hmm. but like now Bufine and like they started, uh, which is like uh, a drug that's given to women when they're in labor essentially. Mm -hmm. So it's not like so powerful that it's going to, you know, maybe sicken or poison the baby, right. um, but like powerful enough where you're going to get that opiate high. And so I was just like, lit and I was loaded, you know, at 17, the first time I got that intermuscular injection. So Q, I want to say three years later when I was dropping out of college from, you know, shooting heroin, I had this doctor at UCLA and he was like, Hey, we have this experimental thing, you know, and it's, um, it's, it's called Suboxone, it's buprenorphine and it can't get you high or anything like that. And I was like, I didn't want to show my excitement to the doctor. Because you'd already family. done it. I'd already done it. But, I, but let me get this straight. Like, it was already out, but it wasn't called Suboxone. They, but it, no, it, they, they had just named it Suboxone then. It was okay. it was already sublingual. Mm -hmm. um, but Suboxone is, buprenorphine is the main, you know, that's the active drug. And they sure. just hit it with a touch of uh, naloxone, okay. basically, so you can inject it. That's okay. really what okay. it is. Because that's what we were doing was injecting it. Right. Um, but come to find out, I, I mean, in my experience, it was just as powerful <laughs> sublingual as it was um injection you know minus so you get to do this experiment did you sign up yeah i don't know how <laughs> i don't know my dad had researched it because you know he's one of those guys who wants to like use his intellect as any loving father to solve the problem of like my son's getting arrested mm -hmm. he's overdosing you know he's we're finding needles all over the place and right. he's dropped out of college so um I think he was just doing his research and like that was kind of what was being presented as mm. the solution. Um, and for me, it was cool because it was getting me high, you know, and. Uh, During the experiment, you mean that that stuff you were getting? You yeah, could still get I mean, high on it? yeah, I mean, have you ever taken Suboxone? I have not, but I but I know that you can get high on Suboxone. Yeah, it's a good high. Okay, like so how were you getting high off it? Obviously not injecting it. No, no, you don't need to inject it to get high. Just the, the thing is, it doesn't get you high if you're, say, actively it's it's a um opioid antagonist it's a weird kind like of blocker it, yeah it's it works as a blocker but also as an opioid right um so it doesn't get you high say if you're on heroin in fact it can like launch precipitated withdrawals i didn't know any of this at the time but right. if you what i did know from in layman's terms is like if i've shot heroin that day right and i take suboxone i'm gonna get really sick really sick so you have to wait like 24 there's a 24 hour period yeah about a 24 hour period and the other thing is like if i'm completely strung out on heroin mm -hmm. then like this amount of Suboxone isn't going to get me high, but sure. you give me 72 hours without heroin and the Suboxone getting me high. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, Cause it's still like an opiate. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I, I didn't mean to launch right into that. No, I don't mind actually yeah. like, because we're talking about what we're talking about Yeah. to know like the, the see, like you asked me, like, have you ever taken Suboxone? I never knew about Suboxone. I did have the heroin stint and I had a opium stint from like, 
real opium from like the old country. Yeah. So I didn't know when I got addicted to opium, it was like a six month. I, I would meet with my cousin here in Hollywood and we would do opium all day. And I tell him, I don't, I don't feel this. He's like, this isn't, it's not a head high. So you're not going to get high. Like you do on weed. Like yeah. this is a body high. And like within six months of a hard addiction to where I just, I called him one day. I'm like, I'm shivering. I'm shaking. I'm puking. I'm sweating. I'm by the toilet. What the fuck is wrong with me? And he said, dude, you're withdrawing. I'm like, withdrawing. What does that even mean? And he said, well, you're, you're addicted. Like you're dope sick. And so I was like, I'll never do this again. So I kicked myself like, and I had all the pain in my bones and everything. I never knew about Suboxone until like a couple years later, I met someone that told me he was on Suboxone maintenance for like five years. I was like, what is that? And yeah. he, he told me like, it's an alternative to methadone these days. A lot more people are using it as opposed yeah. to methadone. Yeah. So you got into this stuff. Uh, how long were you doing to the subs then at that point? Um, or, or why? <laughs> I mean, just to not, just to not get high on heroin anymore. Yeah. It's a tough question. I started getting arrested and like I said, I'd had a job in a pharmacy. So mm -hmm. like, my hustle was selling drugs. My hustle was going into Watts or South Central, East LA, and picking up uh, sometimes Inglewood, but basically like picking up heroin for real, real cheap mm -hmm. and bringing it back to the suburbs and selling it for a lot more. Um, you know, like my good friends in Orange County, mm -hmm. I mean, made me a San lot Clemente. of money. San Clemente made a lot of money in San Clemente. I mean, granted, I served three and a half years in prison for this. So it's not like, you know, I'm saying anything that like, is there's no me. success behind it. Yeah. It's not like, I'm, you know, I'm going to get in trouble for it. Um, how old were you when you got busted and went to prison? Uh, I was, I had a series of arrests and I think the one that I had, because when I was younger, so back up, I used to always, I would work in the pharmacy and I would go over to Mexico mm. and just bring pharmaceuticals across mm. and kind of like ball out. you know what I mean? And then you can have like, and I never like made any money that I didn't just like give away in drugs or like just right. party with, you know, um, mm. it wasn't like I was building the capital. And so then when I went to college, because I had um, been, expelled twice from my high school because mm -hmm. I was a drug addict um, and had drugs on campus um, and always was getting implicated to like sales like when like you know just nickel and dime my friends mm -hmm. um, and so I got arrested three times uh, with possession of heroin just because I was a sloppy young kid you know I'm 19 I'm 20 um, I'm 21. I'm getting. And back then, when you got arrested, it wasn't it wasn't just a slap on the wrist. No, or... it was a felony. It felony, was a straight up felony. Felony possession of heroin. Mm -hmm. uh, later on, I would learn how to like not get caught with heroin. You know, sure. Keister it or swallow it. <laughs> yes. um, and but I didn't know any of that stuff. So the third time I got caught, they sentenced me to 90 days flat in the LA County Jail. Mm -hmm. um, and. The sad part about that is like my dad figured out a way where like if you have money, you can pay to do time in like a substation. Yes. And there's like a substation somewhere. The Pasadena and, or something. Yeah, Pasadena yeah, yeah. or somewhere. Yeah. But like I was like 22 and I'm, you know, I'm fucking tough, you know, and I wanted to go to like. The hardened area? Yeah, I wanted to go with the, the, with the big boys, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Um, thugs. And secretly, the truth is I wanted to do that because I knew I could get high in L.A. County Jail that I wouldn't likely get away with in the substation. Mm. They gave me two months to turn myself in for a 90-day stint. And when I turned myself in, I had a rectum full of heroin and hash. And, oh um, and I nodded out like day five. Just You know what I mean? Like right. I'm shooting heroin in the county jail and I get caught. They had rigs in there? I brought my own. 
Oh, because you keistered it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> so you can... Uh, that's I mean, a, I've heard that's about a, this shit. That's a separate uh, how-to instructional video. <laughs> well, I'm not doing that today. You know, you cut the wings off. Yeah. Don't burn it. And so... And that was it. And then I got sentenced to prison for two years um, on that one. They gave me halftime. It was my first offense. It was nonviolent. Mm. And the thing about that was like, that was three possession charges with a fourth possession in, in custody. Never was, I really wasn't like breaking in the like cars and doing like, I was like, you know, a, a Jewish kid from Palos Verde stealing from my parents. That's what I was doing. Right. You know what I mean? Right. I wasn't like out there wreaking havoc in the streets. Mm -hmm. And when I got out after that term, um, that changed me. You know, I was 23 um, and I was very institutionalized. Before that, I was never like violent. Um, you know what I mean? I grew up like boxing and wrestling, but I was never a violent person. Mm -hmm. And I was very violent and I would like assault my friends. Like we'd be getting high and I would feel disrespected and mm -hmm. I would just start punching you in the face. You know, and like, um, the things that I learned for survival in prison mm -hmm. really kind of changed me in a way that I didn't like. Um, so I got arrested and I went back to prison. Um, all right, we're going to wrap up to future present. Well, I do want to hear about this because yeah. we've had conversations before and to hear like being a Jewish guy in, yeah. in a prison, like who the fuck do you run with? Yeah. Uh, we have a better, uh, <laughs> kosher diet than the halal diet, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, that was tough too because my name's Daniel Goldman and yeah, um, I'm a screaming Jew. Yeah, I'm <laughs> a white guy and, and I'm riddled with fear. And you know, we can't. I'm five foot nine. You know, I weigh I weighed 122 pounds when I was strung out. I probably weighed like 150 when I got to prison. Mm. And um, you know, I think that fear made me more like a target. Like, yeah. You know, people would like make fun of me for being Jewish, big skinheads. You know, and I learned to be very confrontational. You know, there's a saying in prison either you're a gorilla or you're a banana, mm. you know, and like, I ain't a fucking banana, right. you know? So like, if you say something to me, it doesn't matter how big you are. Yeah. Um, like I've got to try to hold my own. Yeah. Mm. I'm not even gonna say anything. I'm just going to jump over the table and just fucking start hitting you. You know, you might like pull me off of you and shoot sure. me up in the end, but like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm going to get my respect. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I, yeah, I ran with a bunch of white dudes, you know what I mean? My close friends that, you know what I mean? Have swastikas and, you know, iron crosses and lightning bolts tattooed on them. And like, that's my group, you know, <laughs> what a you guys what are the a most anti-Semitic and I ate a kosher diet when I was in there. And, you know, I, kind of working the rabbi they actually oh because there's rabbis in prison right? there's rabbis in prison and there's a lot of donations from the jewish community for like a really good diet okay so, so they will allow you to continue to like do a kosher diet when yeah yeah, yeah just most people like you know it's like they're not coming out of the jewish closet they're gonna run right. with like you know it's, yeah someone else but so I'm, you know yeah something yeah. like that but yeah. i'm white you know what i mean yeah. i have no hispanic blood yes. like, you know what i mean i'm like oh god it's not really my group <laughs> so, so after how so you said three and a half years you did prison time yeah it was instant so i got out that time oh let me ask you this when uh -huh. you're in there were you ever exposed to any kind of 12-step community within like ever bring any panels or anything there and things like that yeah Did there they? were some cool panels too um there were some good solid messengers that came in carrying a 12-step message mm -hmm. i had heard the message when i was 14 i went to my first 12-step meeting at the hermosa beach Alano club mm -hmm. um you know, but the truth is, like, I don't, I wasn't trying to, like, better myself. There's people in there, and they were going to church for real, and they were doing 12-step for real. Right. I don't know how easy of a time they were having with correspondence or with sharing secrets and stuff. Um, but I do know that, like, 
I wasn't doing the deal. Right. I was showing up to meetings to like congregate and you, you know what I mean? Yes. Fellowship, but not in the sense of. Uh, not to get like the yeah. true essence of it. Yeah. But it was cool, man. I, I just remember, you know, hearing people and like, you know. Right. Yeah. So then when you got out of prison, then what was life like? Um, again, it was really tough for me because I just had a different mentality. Uh, one that's been hard to shed to this day. And this is like years of like, you know, I'm a, I'm a trauma practitioner. You know what I mean? I've been in trauma therapy for years. It's, it's hard. Sometimes I feel like threatened. I feel disrespected. Mm -hmm. I feel like my security is in jeopardy. If right. you guys are, you know, like making fun of me, that kind of thing. Um, and you know, I haven't really like had to, you know what I mean? I haven't assaulted anyone in yeah. nine years. It's great. Um, <laughs> and like, uh, and so it wasn't easy for me, but the thing that trumps everything for me is my heroin addiction. Mm. You know, we can't see that like I'm having a tough time, um, coping and grasping with society and feeling like rejection and, and heartbreak and, um, like different from people carrying briefcases. Mm -hmm. I can't see any of those things right. because what you see is I have track marks, you know? So the primary thing we're all looking at with me is that I can't stop injecting heroin mm. and we can't even start to look at like the underlying issues. Um, and in 12 step, you know, often we refer to like alcohol or heroin as like, this is the solution. It's not the problem, right? You know, the problems deep down within it's, it's my reaction to the world. It's my selfishness, mm -hmm. my self-centeredness. Um, it's my lack of coping mechanisms and because things are so frustrating and I just can't take it. I need to kind of, mm. Oh, thank God. Now I can get through the day. Now I can go to work. Yes. You know? um, and so that's all I could see. And I think, pretty much most people around me could see is like mm. this presenting issue is this guy's like, <laughs> this guy can't keep a needle out of his arm. Right. Um, and so I went through that and that, that changed me though, because when I got out, I was like a lot more violent. I had really good drug connections at that point. Um, I was like, a trusted oh, really? like guy. In your I was 20, 23 uh -huh. and you know, I knew some real gangsters in LA that they trusted me and I had respect. I wasn't like someone who's just gonna like, you know, burn them or act a fool, you know, right. and I, and I, and I got some really good heroin for a really good cost. And, um, backup, I had tried to go on the straight and narrow. I got a job in Hermosa beach at a pet store. I was working like 50 hours a week, but I was still shooting heroin and I was nickel and diming it just on the side to my friends. I ended up getting arrested possession with intent to sell again mm -hmm. it wasn't possession with intent it was like because they sold heroin in those little balloons mm -hmm. you know these little five dollar balloons and that's how they came a pack for fifty dollars was 12 you know you got 12 nickels for 50 bucks mm -hmm. so they catch you with 24 bags which is a hundred dollar like it's gonna last me two days but it looks like this guy's got 24 individual bags of heroin he's selling right. it. i'm like no this is a two-day supply man like mm -hmm. what are you talking about mm -hmm. um or one day supply often um and so it kept, I got arrested again. I went, um, it was like a whole rigmarole of like, you know, kind of like, I, I could tell you stories and stories of like the dishonesty that had come from local police officers, which in their defense probably saw me as a guy, this guy's guilty. Mm. I can't prove he's guilty. So I'm just going to lie, you know, which was my experience with police often. But right. again, in their defense, like I was guilty. I was shooting dope, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and so I got out. Um, I was in Northern California. I was locked up six months. And when I got out that time, I was like, I'm not fucking around. I'm not nickel and diamond stuff. And I'm not like working at the pet store, 
you know, I'm just going to be a full-time criminal here and I'm going to sell drugs. And, uh, and that's what I did. I discharged parole using a, a Wiznator. If you don't know what a Wiznator is, it's a, it's a rubber the device, it's a rubber penis. And then this is the funny part of the story. I don't know why I'm telling the story, but I say it. Um, so when I went in a scramble, cause my PO called me, you got a test. And I'm like, I'm, you know what I mean? I'm hooked like a mountain trout. Like I'm dirty. Right. And so I go to the store and I got to get this Wiznator I had heard oh. of. And the only one they have is the Latino one, you know? So, Oh my god! I probably shouldn't tell this stuff. Say it, you know. This is actually so, good. It's so funny. it's this fake rubber penis, yeah. and it's got big vein on it, and it's yeah. kind of big, you know. Like yeah. it's bigger than like you know. I'm not unlike that. Yeah. And they make this thing kind of, but it was like dark, bro. Uh -huh. I mean, it would have been dark on you. That's what I'm saying, <laughs> like you know. And I go in there, and my and I'm I'm clearly strung out, man. And my PO's, you know, sneaking up behind me. And when you go to Englewood Parole to like test mm -hmm. they lock the door behind you so like if something's fishy like you're already in custody kind of thing right like, you can't get out like he needs to take the keys off his belt you're not like, running yeah you're not going anywhere like he's got cuffed the buildings you know full of sworn officers like you're, you're cooked man yeah. and uh so he's coming up behind me and he says this he's like you wouldn't happen to have a rubber penis attached to you would you my heart's racing. I don't know what to do. I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to take this thing off and like show them, you know, what I, my, what I'm really working with. I don't know. And like, you know, fake urine's already coming out of the stream of this like right. ridiculously large Latino dark fake penis. Oh, <laughs> and he comes and he, and he, I just don't know what to do. I'm kind of frozen. So I just, I just show him the rubber piece, you know, and he, and he takes a good, Oh, all right, I'm sorry. And he turns away and that was it. Oh my and I, God. And I he got embarrassed for you. And I discharged <laughs> parole like that. I mean, I guess he just thought I was working with a big dark Brown appendage down there. Anyway, um, <laughs> so I discharged parole like that and I sold drugs and I, I, uh, you know and I mean? That was the first time in my life I ever had a comfortable, I ever had money. Mm. You know, I rented a nice house in Venice. I bought myself a truck. I, crash it i fix it i crashed it, i fixed it you know mm -hmm. what i mean i like um i went on vacation um i was going to europe like i had like money for the first time ever um and it was with a lot of the ways i learned how not to get caught behind the wall mm -hmm. how to swallow your dope you know I, I would roll with big gator you know police have like hemmed me up and like you know i I don't pull over right away. I act like I don't see him. I just keep driving slowly. I swallow right. all the dope. They come up to my window. I got Gatorade like dripping down my, you know what I yeah. mean? And they know something's, they know I'm up to something, but they can't get me, you know, right. that kind of thing. So I went back to prison because I'm, I'm clever, but not that clever. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, to fast forward, that was where I had a spiritual awakening as a result of doing a lot of 12 step we're not even doing visiting a lot of places where they're doing 12 step mm -hmm. and I had a spiritual awakening and I got out of prison two years after that. And that was a dark run for me. You know, that was like a, that was a hard term. I ended up going to Corcoran. I was, uh, you know, I was back there. Manson was on the other side of the wall and he would, you know, sing loudly with his guitar and his big beard and he was flanked by CEOs. And it was like, Holy shit. There was one guy on my tier that had a release date besides me. And it was like a real reality check. Right. You know, it was like my, circumstances had landed me in a place where it was like i couldn't like postpone or evade my reality mm. it was like holy shit like this is this is the curtain man and um i was fortunate you know i went into a uh, a treatment center i stayed there 14 months um i worked all 12 steps was it like an indigent center or an it was a non-profit it was a jewish treatment center Beit shuva okay um and their mission statement was to keep jews out of prison and jail and i was like that's 
I'm that guy. I was bar mitzvahed in San Pedro. Like, you know what I mean? I'm like the poster child coming to you, like, Mm -hmm. you know, third prison term, like what's up, you know? And they gave me an opportunity and I, and I tried my best not to squander it. And I tried um, my best to just like live a life and be a good person. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and a lot of that was um, testament to the close partners that I had ran with that were, were dead or never getting out of prison. I, I wanted, a lot of those guys were good dudes. A lot of these like, you know, you know, real deal killers Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, these are hard men. Like, you know, there's a uh, Shakespeare saying like, no beast so fierce, but no some touch of pity. Mm. And that's what they were like some real hard men that like, that's, it's a comic book when the evil guy is just all evil and the good guy is always good. Right. Right. And this dude's like a real killer and he'll kill you over dope or money. But like, man, he wants to see you do well. Well, you know, and he yeah. feels and he feels bad that like he's not there for his family and that he never gets an opportunity of redemption. And he wants to maybe say some kind words to you because that's what it is to be human. Mm-hmm. Though I have like I might be blocked with like some selfish, self-centered shit right. and thinking about me and what's in it and how am I going to get mine? Uh, it's it's maybe natural to just care for others. Mm-hmm. It's maybe natural to like want to see someone else not suffer the way I've suffered. And so I had a lot of like good role models, like you wouldn't call them good role models because mm-hmm. these guys were lifers, you know, right. um, but like good role models that like, they wanted me to stand on my own two feet. They wanted me to be tough and not take shit, but they wanted me to um, have mercy and compassion when appropriate and like live a good life as a good awesome. person, you know, and love um, that. And I was able to do just that. I went back to college. I got my, uh, I got my first, I went, I got my KDAC at UCLA extension. Mm-hmm. Um, and then did like 6,000 clinical hours. And where became, were you living at the time? Uh, you out of treatment? Yeah. I stayed there for 14 ma- months and then I got a, uh, you know, pen, yeah. uh, four of us sober guys. Mm-hmm. Um, well, three sober guys, one sober gal. We all got an apartment together. We stayed there a couple of years and, you know, um, I was just really immersed in 12 step. I was working in treatment. I was going to school to be a drug and alcohol counselor. Right. Um, I went back to school after finishing that with the intention of becoming a therapist. Um, but I had to get my BA in psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just in education. And then I took like a detour to become like a non practitioner because I fell in this like unique category of having a BA in psychology and having a KDAC too that I could like do this where everyone else had their graduate degree and I didn't and right. I like, you know, and then I, I opened a business in 2015. Okay. Let's, yeah. That's what I want to get into. So I remember when you opened the business, it, it's called alchemy house. Sober living. And why did you name it that? Um, it's spiritual transformation. Okay. Wonderful. And when you opened that, what was, how did you, okay. So the, it's a structured sober living. It's been all these years, Yeah, six years. I remember I came to the grand opening and, Saw the setup. I was excited for you, yeah, thank and you. It, and it keeps going. And and um, I, I've had um, Chris Howard on here. I've had nice. I've had some friends on here that um, that have created homes like what you have. Yeah, I come from that. Like that's what I got sober in a very very structured environment. Yeah. which if I didn't, I probably wouldn't have stayed sober. Have here, yeah. Right. Um, but you guys do exceptional work. It's thank it's you. known. Like you have a very good reputation in the field. A lot of people know to, to hit you up if they, if they have a kid that's troubled, let's say for, with addiction or whatnot. So when you open this place, um, did, as far as being a counselor and all, well, you said you wanted to become a therapist, but did that stuff be put on the back burner and you just decided to start this business, but continue to uh, study to be a pr- practitioner, as you had mentioned, is it trauma practitioner? Yeah. Trauma practitioner. Yeah. Um, 
So they'd be happy if I plug that. The neuroattachment relational model, it comes out of somatic experiencing. Dr. Lawrence Heller created mm-hmm. it. He was the head of the Somatic Experiencing Institute for Institute for about 20 years. But anyway, um, I think what happened was I just felt like driven as a purpose of um, sometimes I struggled being in 12-step recovery and feeling like, hey, man, I've created um, what I call and I challenge anyone to it's the heaviest 12-step sober living in California. <laughs> um, and I felt like, is this right for me? This thing's so precious to me. I, this is supposed to be for fun and for free. It's not something I'm supposed to sell and give away. Mm-hmm. And the idea is like it was, you know, through some tradition study, it's 12-step facilitation creating a space to make that work possible. Mm-hmm. And I think it just, I preferred and felt like that was my calling rather than just doing individual work with people. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was more useful um, in that environment. And I felt like there was just a need for it. You know, there's lots of great modalities for treatment and recovery, sure. um, you know, and just my personal favorite is 12 step. And so like, that's what we do. Like, let's just have a place where like, that's our emphasis and that's what we do best. But I, I do need to be aware of my client population that's coming in co-occurring disorders. I need to know how to deal with people that have their defenses risen up from, um, you know, different mental health issues, different Mm -hmm. crises, different like traumas they've experienced, um, different populations that maybe I'm not familiar with. Mm -hmm. And, and so like, I, I just kind of expanded in my education and always wanted to continue to learn so that, um, you know, maybe, you're bipolar, maybe you're, you know, borderline tendencies, but you also have serious substance abuse. So like, sure. how can I best implement 12 step into your life, but have it actually land? Cause I need to talk to people differently based on how they respond. Some people I can really like put a finger in their face and like, do you realize you're going to fucking die? But if you keep doing this, you're full of shit. You need to shut up and stop lying to everyone. And they can respond to that and be like, man, this guy's right. Yeah. And another guy, his defenses come up and he's just like, you i'm out of here right and and so i need to learn how to work with my client population Mm -hmm. so i can you know best you know kind of like plant this seed within them very well said i i I respect that very much so let's say uh i mean six years now you've been open when you get somebody that comes in let's say well do you do you take people that are on suboxone so i think that was like supposed to be kind of the uh intention of like it just kind of went in this other direction well actually um, i think that has a lot to do with what you're saying because 12 steps works for many of us mm-hmm. right i mean you just talked about how it changed your life i talk about how it changed my life and both of us have witnessed and watched um med- med- medication assistant and treatment matt like mm-hmm. become more popularized especially in the last five years ten years where um in tr- in a treatment setting like they're they cannot turn somebody away that wants to be continue to be on that right yeah so us as sober living owners because i'm my homes and you know about my homes mm-hmm. are very much like yours like we want people involved in the 12-step world yeah point blank yeah every once in a while you get some guy that's like refuge recovery or smart recovery but or even any or some other 12-step you know but mm-hmm. but for the most part like most of our guys go to certain meetings and they are studying the 12 steps but uh, i get more and more calls of the guy wants to be on sublocate or yeah. The dude wants he he wants to continue being on mat and really as like sober living owners we can't really turn them away we're not supposed to yeah however uh i usually say how long would the person want to be on it or would they be open to getting off of it eventually so that in my world they could eventually start to get some real recovery yeah you know what are your thoughts on this 
Uh, there's a lot. I mean, I can talk for a long time about that. I, I think, um, you know, you can look at a lot of, we can, God, there's so many ways to take that basic recovery landscape. So California, the number one, God, I'll just go there. The number one industry in California is agriculture. The number two is incarceration. And so we can see that like we have a large, I wish I had more stats on this. I didn't do the research. I should have. We have a larger prison system in California um, than most countries, Mm -hmm. you know? And so like when we're looking at like the money that's rolling in there, I mean, I hate to be that guy of like, let's follow the money. But like, you know, what the Sackler family did with Oxycontin Mm -hmm. and like, you know, um, the DEA building a case on that and that getting canceled by the government of like, Hey, we're not coming after those guys. It's like, well, why not? Like we know that they were paying doctors to prescribe this, um, for maintenance when it wasn't, um, when they knew they had the research and the data to say like, Hey man, this is for like terminally ill. This is not for chronic pain because like, this is highly addictive and will destroy their lives. But they wanted to make some money and they did. And they, they lined the right pockets. They were able to like give doctors, um, which in our industry is like a big no-no. You pay for clients, you know what I mean? But like there is like, hey, the more of these scripts of Oxycontin you write, the more money we're going to line your pockets with. And so we're seeing a lot of corruption. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of like then this opioid epidemic comes out of that. And now we're seeing that these same uh, doctors are saying, well, hey, the recovery method is like we got to get you on maintenance for Suboxone. But what I tell doctors is, again, have you taken this stuff before? Mm-hmm. Like it gets you really, really high. It's a great high. It. We'll get into some of the strengths of it before I tear it down. Okay. Um, you know, like it, it, it facilitates relapse because I can be on Suboxone and enjoy my high. And now I want to like take it to the next level. I want to shoot some heroin. I just stop taking the Suboxone for about 24 hours. Wait till I get a little sick. Do some dope. And now I can like stop doing the dope for 24 hours, go back to the Suboxone. I can show up to my job, wherever my job is, and I don't have to kick dope now, right. you know? And I, it facilitates this, like me going on and off heroin. Um, and more so what it's doing from like a, a 12 step lens is that like, if 12 steps are about me um, addressing the issues that I have deep down within. And like, again, I gave the analogy, like I'm using this, I'm using alcohol, I'm using, Uh, opium to feel better Mm -hmm. because I have a twisted perception of reality Mm -hmm. and my tools of going through life are tools that often in me being stressed out, me being angry, Mm -hmm. me feeling like life's not fair. I got the short end of the stick. Like where's my perfect situation? How come other people get this? I'm judging you. You're an idiot. This guy doesn't deserve any of this. And this is so frustrating walking through the world, not getting my way and being pissed that I just need to, Oh, thank God I have this Suboxone to calm me down. Mm. But what if I had a different perception of reality and different tools at my disposal so I could go through the world and not be in a heightened state of anxiety, not feel like I'm getting the short end of the stick, Mm. be grateful and appreciate what I have. Man, a lot of people are going without like water. Water is a struggle for them. Like, Like having a full belly is a struggle for them. Freedom, being able to see the sky, like all these things and like, can I start to just appreciate what I have? Is it ever going to be enough? You know, how many cars, how much money, like, is it ever enough? Can I just appreciate what I have? And can I learn some tools to appreciate what I have and then learn how to deal with stress when I lose a job, when, when a relationship ends, when someone gets sick or 
God forbid, dies in my family? Can I have some resilience and stay strong? And if I can learn those tools, man, I might not need to stay high on Suboxone anymore. Mm. Um, and granted, I've seen some cases. My ex-wife used to work at a methadone clinic, and we would discuss clients because I work with clients and she works with clients. And, mm-hmm. You know, we wouldn't give names or anything like that. But the idea was like we could see there's some legitimate cases of people that like, man, this is the best they're going to do is be on methadone. You know what I mean? Like this poor woman's been homeless for 30 years. You right. know what I mean? She's not set on changing her ways. She just doesn't want to have to wake up and diarrhea and not be able to eat and all these things. And there's like some mental health components that accompany a lot of these conditions where like, man, what we're seeing here is I think the best scenario is um, maintenance, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and at the same time, I'm saying a mouthful. There's a lot of, I mean, it could be like a conspiracy theorist. We could say there's a lot of corruption there that like, this is what's mandated and that the client who doesn't have much advocacy, um, like I'm not, I haven't been making good decisions, you know, Mm -hmm. for a long time when I'm coming into treatment. And Mm -hmm. now you offer me this thing where like, Hey man, you can keep getting high. It's not as good as heroin, but you can keep getting high. Um, and we're going to collect more insurance money if you keep getting high. I mean, if you take the Suboxone, like, you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, like, I don't have the, like, wherewithal to make good decisions. I ain't been making good decisions. Right. So, of course, I take that. And, like, and then I find myself where, like, because I'm still numb inside, I'm not raw and I'm not vulnerable enough for the CBT skills, the DBT skills, the 12-step skills, all these things I'm supposed to, the trauma work I'm supposed to be doing, the processing of emotions is not really happening because I'm still kind of numb inside. I'm getting numb on the suboxone and I'm not getting down to like causes and conditions and the root of like what ails me. And and it becomes this like really difficult cycle. And and Mm -hmm. I just, I think we're doing a disservice here. And I see that like, you know, the good news is big pharmaceutical companies are making a lot of money with this stuff um, by prescribing it to everyone. But I think it's being overly prescribed and we're just seeing it kind of be like a a mandatory criteria where like that's a shame when a residential treatment center cannot operate unless they offer um unless they offer this kind of stuff and and you know i've seen some clever arguments i saw the surgeon general address the nation and say you know and and reported some studies of you know like and it, and it seemed compelling, you know, to the untrained eye was like, oh, well, they have he took a control group of 30 year old adult males that were um, addicted to heroin and. Half the group went on methadone maintenance for mm-hmm. a year and the other half didn't. And what he found was that the mortality rate was seven times higher for those that were not on methadone maintenance. And I believe that was accurate information. But that was in a hospital setting. Like, you ever been to a methadone clinic? You know, you ever see all the like the hookers and drug dealers hanging out right out front? You know, everyone's smoking crack. Like, that's not a methadone clinic I ever went to. You know what I mean? For this control study, what's the quality of life? And what's the long-term recovery? You know, because you can, I might be a danger and a threat to myself. You can just lock me in a cage, man. Like, I spent over a year of my life in solitary confinement. And when I'm in solitary confinement, I'm not much of a threat to anyone. Mm -hmm. I'm not really much of a threat to myself. Um, but what kind of life is that? Yeah. You could lock the real severe fentanyl addict who likely might be dead within the next five years of overdose. That's a reality. And if we locked all the fentanyl users, like they used to lock all the alcohol ups up in asylums Mm -hmm. because they were, the truth is we're going to see a lot higher survival rate of fentanyl users. If we just lock them all in a box, Mm -hmm. that's a fact. Um, but is that the humane thing to do? 
And I, I don't know because that's when it's really difficult of like, you know what? A lot of these users, um, they're going to pass away. They're going to overdose. They're going to meet mortality. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's the argument of what they're presenting of like, this is why we want them all strung out on our brand of what we're selling them. You know, we don't want them on the street shit anymore. We want them buying our shit and this will help them survive. But like, which, which then creates movements like harm reduction. Exactly. I mean, I, I myself, like I, I got my TikTok presence and I'm on there and sometimes I'll speak on what I feel. I don't even say like what you must do. Mm -hmm. I talk about how I feel about something. And all of a sudden you'll get these guys that they'll come and um, stitch my, my, uh, my video and then tell me about how I don't know what the fuck I'm talking of course, about. And, of course. and that uh, the harm reduction community saves lives because there are people that would be dead if they weren't uh, yeah. on, on methadone or suboxone maintenance. And, and, um, and I'm just, I think to myself, well, I, I just feel like people are losing the opportunity of getting some real abstinence-based recovery if they continue to, to have a Band-Aid, if you will, of some, like, especially like uh, Chris had said this when I had him on here. If you got a guy like you had mentioned too, a guy that's been shooting heroin for like or doing heroin for like thirty years, mm -hmm. I understand like harm reduction might pertain to that person's life, like to keep him alive and yeah. keep him off of the dough. But for a kid that's just been doing like heroin or fentanyl for a year or two, yeah, to keep them on long term maintenance, it's like the kid like let him let him get some recovery, like let him yeah. really be able to delve deep within himself and work on himself um, as a as as a, opposed to being stuck on that yeah yeah you got one guy that said it's aaron says maintenance is a proven method of treatment and has its benefits also there are people in ha that start on maintenance that are working the steps and i think that is a block for having a spiritual experience but if they are worked honestly miracles still happens i would never work in that side of treatment but i think it has its place in the treatment world so i have you know, from what I understand, in order to have a spiritual experience or spiritual awakening, um, it's been said that Suboxone blocks the brain receptors from have from having the ability to have the experience or the the awakening for that. Yeah. Have you heard this? I haven't heard of that specifically. I know in the rooms it's very frowned upon, probably for the reasons I was saying. Like you're basically still getting high. Again, right. if you've taken Suboxone, you know, like, it's good high. Much better than a Vicodin high. Right. It's good high. So it's like, wait, is that the way? Like, I'm just going to work the steps and then I'm an alcoholic. I just get to drink beer every night instead of vodka. Like, is that is that what we're doing here? Like, sign me up, you right. know? So I, I understand the conundrum. And I think his comment addressed both sides of it. Like, right. mir honestly, miracles still happen. Mm -hmm. Bill Wilson was drunk when Ebby came to carry the message to him. Right. And he had his spiritual awakening. And is the power of God's universe um, powerful enough to create miracles, but not if someone's still on Suboxone? Like, I couldn't say that. Mm -hmm. You know, so I understand that side of the argument. And I understand the side of the argument where a lot of people are going to be, you know, meeting mortality with overdoses mm -hmm. so i understand the maintenance side of the argument but i i do believe that there's a necessary suffering that occurs and there's a necessary pain you know when i feel like i'm on when i feel like i'm drowning mm -hmm. i might do everything i can to survive um and i know for me being like being off of hard drugs like there's an emotional agony mm -hmm. and a mental awareness of how fucked my life is 
of like, oh my God, like so many of my friends are dead. I've just come out of prison again. Like, I can't believe I survived with all these abscesses and everything. I'm going to die soon, mm. you know? And like this scary thought of like, oh my God, like, you know, maybe I have to do something else because this is going to end badly. And maybe that's the suffering and the pain of the awareness that is necessary for me to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work all 12 steps with the desperation of a drowning man. Mm -hmm. But what if I don't really feel like I'm drowning because I'm high on Suboxone and I'm just like cuddling up with my, you know, 30 day romance and we're watching, you know, Netflix together. Mm. Like it might not seem as desperate and I might not be able to work those steps with desperation. I might not have the experience that sets me free, mm -hmm. you know? And I think it's very similar to when, you know, you talk to a lot of families and what, when you talk to a family and you see that mom and dad just keep helping their baby boy out. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to say, Hey, you know, I know this sounds really scary, but I think what you have to do is like pull all the finances. And if he has to be homeless, mm -hmm. that might be the desperation he needs of like, my God, I don't want to be homeless anymore. Like this is really scary versus right. like, eh, if things get bad enough, you know what I mean? My parents still pay my apartment. You know, they don't want me to be outside. Mm -hmm. They're afraid I might get mugged. So my apartment is my shooting gallery and it's not really that bad. Sometimes things need to get really terrifying mm -hmm. so I can pursue recovery. For sure. And and so, I mean, yes, I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer on this one. Like, I agree. There's some situations where, like, man, this poor fella ain't, ain't going to do no recovery work, you right. know? And drowning them on such a high dose <laughs> of methadone might be the best thing. Because if I'm on 200 milligrams of methadone, probably not going to have a fentanyl overdose. Right. Know? Right. Um, granted, my quality of life is going to be piss poor at best. Right. Um, but I'm probably not going to die. So again, it goes back to like, hey, like, are we just better off locking everyone in asylums mm. um, or in a very real way, like risking my fatality mm -hmm. in order to just possibly have that experience of freedom? And, and who can really say what the right thing to do is? Mm -hmm. But I think we can have an accurate assessment of like, your life's probably not going to be that great if you're on methadone and if you're on suboxone like you probably need to be very responsible to not just smoke crack on top of suboxone mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. like because that's which many will one. do many many will do they, 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 i mean addicts are smart yeah oh, well i can't do opiates right now yeah. meth works yeah crack yeah. works coke yeah. works and since i haven't really been able to absorb the recovery tools mm -hmm. because i've been on the, the suboxone like i'm not able to resist the allure of like a big bell ringer from a cloud of crack smoke you right, know? Right, so right, it's right. like there's there's a lot of sides to this argument mm -hmm. to really consider mm -hmm. um and i'm just stating my preference is no abstinence based like that's the recovery i had i'm very grateful and fortunate well you also you also understand it because you were a suboxone user yeah in many different forms yeah. yeah. I mean, I yeah. mean, you, you, you have major experience with this, you know, that that was never going to show you what recovery was really like. And back then it wasn't even really used as maintenance. They were experimenting. Yeah. They're experimenting with maintenance. Yeah. I was an experimental maintenance case. Right. right. Yeah. So, okay. Um, God, this is, it is a good subject. He Aaron said, um, love this subject needs to be talked about at so many angles to look at it and things to talk about. Um, so uh, sometimes, you know, people have asked me to take them through the 12 steps, um, that are on subs. Mm -hmm. It's really hard. Like I, I, 
I don't want to tell them no because I don't want to rob them of the experience. I usually like to talk to them about, and there's been other drugs too, like Adderall and things like that, where I, I tell them, is there any way that you would be open to getting off of that so we could really do the work and yeah. you have a, more of a clear head? And sometimes they're like, no way, and sometimes they're not. But there, uh, Aaron had mentioned here that I think um, HA sponsor usually will take them because it's their world, so so to speak. And I've seen that too. I actually know some people that will take people through the steps mm -hmm. that are on subs, and I usually will refer them over and say, why don't you ask this person? They'll take you. He'll, he'll attempt. Yeah. So, um, but you know, I, I, how's alchemy? How's the house? You guys, you guys do good work, man. I'm telling you. Yeah. I appreciate that. I see a lot of guys that come out of there that are truly like about a good way of life, a sober way of life. It's, it's a beautiful thing to witness. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, you know, we're just kind of making our small impact on the world. Uh, you know, it's located in, we're in yeah we're in West Hollywood it's uh, it's Eddie Murphy's old house you know it's a really you know so he got in a lot of trouble when he was living there um, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that on a podcast but probably not but anyway um, yeah and we're doing real heavy twelve step work and that's kind of the cool thing is like when we're able to witness that was important for me for me to witness that there's people that have the same relationship with heroin that I have they are crazy enough to steal from someone they love, mm -hmm. um, you know, ruin a romantic relationship that's really important to them. Mm -hmm. um, risk going back, being named Daniel Goldman to a very anti-Semitic environment mm -hmm. just to have, you know, a Latino rubber penis attached to me. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I'm willing to put my life on the line. I'm willing to hang out on skid row for days at a time, go down to Watts where I stick out like a sore thumb. Like I'm willing to put my life on the line to continue getting high. And it was important for me to see that there's other people that have the same, had the same relationship with heroin that I had because I always thought I was hopeless. I thought the difference between me and you is that you have an ability to stop and I don't. And that's the difference. And so it was important, if not 100% crucial, for me to see that there's other people that had a, an addicted romance with heroin the way I did mm -hmm. and that they were able to do something and get some freedom. Um, and that was just crucial for me. So we try to mirror that by having all our senior guys take the new guys through the steps. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like the magic of our program. And then we just immerse them. And, you know, that's why you see them because you're in, you know, heavy 12 step community. And that's where we're sending them. We're not sending them to like um, smart recovery because smart recovery is not for that type of addict smart right. recovery is for someone who still has power choice and control. Mm. And there's plenty of people that end up physically addicted to fentanyl and the truth is they still have power choice and control and smart recovery is a perfect program for them but what about like the one who has lost that ability mm. you know you can see him come in and you can see like cps said we're going to take your kids away if you don't stay clean and you know the guy's not lying to you when he says like nothing's more important than my children no one's going to take my children away from me mm. and they're serious. They're not lying, but they have a compulsion to use drugs that they, is more powerful than they're aware of. Mm. They don't know what they're up against and they don't know that just say no is insufficient right. and that they're going to have to do more work. And so like, that's the guys that end up in our program because they're heavy 12 step candidates. These are the guys that would never get a lick of sobriety and smart recovery. An average um, stay for somebody that comes to your facility is about a year. Yeah. About a year. 
Um, and, and it's a sacrifice to pay to unlearn a lifetime of behavior that got me stuck with a bottle in my hand, a needle in my arm, mm -hmm. a pookie in my mouth, whatever it is, like sure. a lifetime of behavior to invest in a lifetime of recovery. You mm -hmm. know, our goal isn't just for a person to get a year sober or to get five years sober. Our goal is for them to live the rest of their lives. That's right. As they know? should. Yeah. So that they can live. Yeah. So they can Especially live. in this day and age with the shit that's going on with this fentanyl stuff, it's, it'll kill you in five seconds. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, and, and half the shit's late. A lot of shit's laced with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like can't even do drugs for fun anymore. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Because there's that risk. Yeah, we got clean at the right time. Absolutely, um, totally. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think that's like an important message for people to hear is that like not truly recovery is possible, mm -hmm. and to hear it not from someone who's just theorizing because they have a PhD from UCLA, which is like very impressive, um, but like someone who can say like, no, man, I've been in the ditch. Yeah. I've been in the gutter. Mm -hmm. I shot dope when I didn't want to shoot dope. When all the consequences were there, I put my life on the line, even though I didn't understand why I was doing this. Mm -hmm. And I was able to find the freedom. And, and this is how I found it, mm -hmm. you know, and to tell people like, Hey man, like you can still be agnostic. Hell, you can be atheist and you can still have an experience with the 12 steps. Cause it's not about believing in shit. It's about experiencing something right. happening to you. Very different to have an experience with something, mm -hmm. um, than to like try to believe something that you might not really believe anyway. And right. I think that gets a lot of people 12 step kind of roadblocked, but that's also kind of a whole separate conversation to can of worms. <laughs> well, I think this has been a great conversation. It's, I've been talking to you about coming on here for a while now, and finally we did it. It's, yeah. And you're always, I always love listening to you. I mean, you're, you're wealth of knowledge. You're just a good man with a good spirit that's, that wears his recovery very well on his sleeve. And I, I sometimes, without even being at your, the, the house, although I've been to your house before, I wonder like when you're there, the interaction that you have with the guys that come through at any age, like I'm, I'm, I'm certain that they, they get to get that Dano flavor of recovery to where they truly, they get to see recovery, recovery in a different way than a lot of other people wouldn't present it as, you know, and it's, it's within your essence. I mean, that's just what you're about. So keep doing what you're doing. You're a good man. I, you know, I love you. Like we're old friends. Yeah. It's, I love you too, man. It's, I really appreciate good to have you. you on here today. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much, man. Thanks to all that tuned in today and uh, talk to you soon. Bye. Nice. Good shit.